0: Welcome to the Fire These Times, a podcast dedicated to the easy task of tackling the 21st century. It is a project born out of my conviction that doing so requires an interdisciplinary and intersectional approach to understanding our complex world. I'm your host, Jaira Yub, and in these episodes I bring you conversations in the intersection of politics, history, philosophy, culture, science, and all the fun stuff in between. The following episode was first published for monthly Patreon supporters. To become a monthly Patreon supporter, please head out to patreon.com slash times check the website for other methods. You can become a supporter for as little as one dollar a month. And if you cannot donate, you can still support this project by sharing with your friends and family and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The music of this podcast is by Tarabit. Here's the episode. So this is another special episode uh, with Sumaya Awad and Shirin akram Sumaya is the co-editor of the book Palestine and in Socialist Introduction and Shirin contributed the chapter to that same book. As we were talking, uh, the ceasefire was announced between Hamas and Israel, which means that by the time that you're probably going to listen to this, a ceasefire would have been Established, hopefully, you know, lasting for as long as possible. We discussed a number of things. I won't spend too much time summarizing. We first started like discussing our relationship to Palestine, uh, the three of us. We, of course, contextualized a bit of like uh, the recent waves of violence, but we ended up just having kind of a a general conversation, you know, mixing the political and the person, as I sometimes like to do on this uh, podcast, discussing the importance of intersectionality, linking up with Black Lives Matter, and you know the anti-colonial struggles of indigenous peoples around the world, linking up to the struggles of the Arab Spring, the Syrian revolution, the Bahraini revolution, the Egyptian revolution. We mostly focus on the Syrian one, you know, and various other topics that, as I said, I won't get into too much now. So, yeah, that's it for me. I won't say too much. Uh, enjoy this episode. I hope you find it informative and take care, everyone. Thank you both for agreeing to do this on such short notice. I know we had an episode planned to talk about your book Palestine: A Socialist Introduction. Um, feel free to reference it as well as much as you want. But I wanted us to have this like kind of a reaction episode in some ways, as I think there's some value in, in also simply talking without necessarily being more prepared. Um, you know if that makes sense. So okay, let's just start with some basic introductions if that's okay. Um, yeah, so Maya, maybe you can start.
1: Great. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Um... So uh, my name is Maya Awad, and I am a Palestinian. I grew up, I was actually born and raised in Jordan. My grandfather's from Jerusalem. And in 1948, he, his family was forced out and they went to Beirut uh, because he had an uncle there. And th- they left thinking they would return as, as many, if not most Palestinians did. Um, but he never was able to return. Um, he passed away in 2019, without without being able. To home. Although his his home, his family home, is still in Jerusalem. It's in the Old City um, of Jerusalem, and um, so I, you know, grew up with Palestine being very central to uh, who I am, my upbringing, and my grandfather was very, very political, um, and yeah. That's that's the short of it. Right now, I'm, I'm based in New York City. Um, <clears throat> as Joey mentioned, I'm the co-editor of a book that was released in December 2020, Palestine, a Socialist Introduction. You should get a copy if you don't have one. And I'm the director of strategy at the Adala Justice Project, which is a US-based. Um, Advocacy and organizing um, organization.
2: Thanks, Joey uh, and Samaya. Uh, my name is Shireen Akram Boshar. I'm a Boston-based activist and socialist, uh, and a longtime Palestine solidarity activist. Um, while I'm not Palestinian, I, I also grew up in a I grew up in a very pro-Palestine and, and anti-imperialist household. Uh, my parents were very active on Palestine, although they're uh, Lebanese American and, and Pakistani. Um, So I actually spent time in Palestine as a child uh, and in East Jerusalem for a summer when I was about five and then for a year when I was in first grade. Uh, And I think, you know, living there as a child completely shaped my politics, you know, going forward since like I remember at five years old seeing people get shot in Al-Khalil and Hebron and at checkpoints and then I had to go to, through a checkpoint every day to go to school in first grade, which was <laughs> very stressful for me as a child. And you know, I remember my dad, who's uh, Lebanese American, when he tried to visit us uh, one time, he was interrogated for seven hours uh, when he was trying to get through Israel, basically. Um, and at the at the same time, I was like completely embraced by the Palestinian community around us uh, and that we lived with at the time. Yeah.
0: All right. Thank you both for this. Um... Also, maybe for the for the sake of having this episode being self containing, I will say that, I mean, I'm from Lebanon, Uh, my grandfather was from from Haifa, he passed away last year. And he, like uh, Sumayi's own grandfather, also was someone who thought the exile would be temporary. Uh, what, ended up, what ended up happening is that in the late 40s, right after the Nakba, he made his way to uh, Zahle in Lebanon, in the, in the Ba'a in the Bekaa. And then for one reason or another, which we're not entirely sure why yet, uh, he then migrated more west with my grandmother, who they both met in Palestine. She's, from, she's Italian and grew up in, I mean, then spent most of all of their lives, the remaining part of their lives um, in in Mount Lebanon, where I grew up. And for me, the Palestinian cause was both something that, because I didn't actually know my grandfather's uh, heritage up until about a decade ago, more or less. Mm -hmm. So the Palestinian cause is something that I, well, I I learned independently. uh, Let's put it that way. And then I discovered that I had uh, an actual direct connection to, uh, which created all sorts of mixed feelings and obviously contradictions and a number of things that uh, maybe we'll get into. But yeah, so I just wanted to put that as well. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about your relationship to Palestine you sort of already did. Um, I'm kind of, you know, this is going to be a difficult question off the start already, but given that we're recording this specifically on May 20th, uh, well, 2021, obviously, and things are still very much still developing on the ground, um, what are some of your thoughts on what's been happening, especially recently?
1: Yeah. Um... I can start. So like you said, things are just unfolding by the minute. Um, so I think what triggered the what we've seen unfold in the last few weeks and what is still unfolding uh, was the the protests in Sheikh Jarrah, Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah, this very small neighborhood in Jerusalem in occupied Jerusalem protesting uh, ethnic cleansing campaign that uh, Israel, Israel's armed forces and settler organizations, many of them who uh, are actually have headquarters here in the United States, um, some in New York where I am right now um, trying to force the Palestinian families out and to give their homes to these these settlers. And there's been so many videos circulating of the you know the violence and the the uh, dehumanization that that these settlers represent um, and, and how many of them have American accents, right like they're very new to this land. Um, and yet, they're taking over the homes of Palestinians that have been there for centuries. And so, in Sheikh Jarrah, the protest against this the Judaization of Jerusalem ended up triggering much larger protests in uh, in Jerusalem at Al Aqsa. And this was all happening in the last ten days of Ramadan, which is already a a very uh, important and in, in years past also there have always been protests in those last ten days because Israeli forces prevent Palestinians from going to Al Aqsa to pray and to to worship. And so the Sheikh Jarrah protests uh, made international news. One, I think important to point out because of the brutality of the, the Israeli police against these unarmed just Palestinians in their neighborhood at their homes. You know, you, you, we saw photos and videos of settlers forcing themselves into these homes, throwing grenades, having these like AR-51 strapped onto their backs, just walking around these streets, um, harassing and assaulting Palestinians. And I think that there's definitely, and maybe we can talk about this later, but there's definitely a connection between seeing that and the police brutality in Sheikh Jarrah and connecting it to the police brutality and the protests we saw here um, Mm -hmm. just last summer. Mm -hmm. Um, But then that spread into the the Al-Aqsa protests um, and Israel forced itself into, Israeli forces forced themselves into, forced, yeah, into Al-Aqsa mosque uh, while people were praying at night opened fire on them, uh, live ammunition was used, grenades. And I think all of this sparked a much larger uh, awakening uh, in, in Palestine, and importantly, not just in Jerusalem and not just in the West Bank, but also Palestinians um, living in uh, uh, 48, who rose up as well and protested in solidarity and against what they've been facing, both police brutality, the the, uh, the occupation of their land, and of course, the connection to uh, Gaza, and that's when uh, you know Gaza, uh, it, Hamas intervened, and um, it was sort of this resistance that was from the river to the sea, as we've always chanted for decades. But it actually, it was, it was happening right before our eyes. We Palestinians from Gaza, from 48, from the West Bank, from Jerusalem, were all rising together. Um, against the the colonization of their lands and with one common with one common goal and and this occupation and this settler colonial project mm. um, and then I think another really important thing to point out is how that spilled over to the diaspora right to Jordan to Lebanon to Syria and then beyond that so you had Jordanians first protesting at the Israeli embassy which isn't new this happens almost every Ramadan when Israeli forces attack Al Aqsa um, but what was different is, uh, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of Jordanians that went to the border with Palestine, Mm -hmm. Um, the the infamous uh, Allenby Bridge border and uh, protested there. And, you know, we're chanting, open the borders, open the borders to these rows of armed Jordanian uh, military officers. And some of them actually managed to push their way through, although very quickly were we're forced back. And in Lebanon as well, Mm -hmm. um, although there, one of the protesters was, was shot and killed. And I think that showing this, there's these protests of return. I mean, all of these are Palestinians, right? That Jordan's population is majority Palestinians, Palestinians that were forced out in 1948 or earlier or after um, uh, wanting to return home and to defend their land. And many have pointed out on on Twitter and elsewhere that the last time there was, there was this uh, show of unification was in 1947. Where um, you had Palestinians across the board together as a unified whole um, uh, fighting to get their land back. I'll stop there.
2: Yeah, I mean, thanks, Samaya. You really laid everything out there. I, I guess I'll just comment a little bit on uh, a few things that have been taking place. I mean, I think it's it's really such a different moment right now because you know, on the one hand, you're seeing the massive, completely unleashed violence of the colonizer, you know, where the Israeli police and the government and military and armed settlers and so on are all uh, working together to escalate, you know, the ethnic cleansing project. And uh, they're carrying out lynchings of Palestinians in cities like Haifa and Lid and, you know, carrying out the worst bombardment of Gaza that ever, that's ever been seen before. So on the one hand, it's a horrifying and absolutely terrifying moment. You know, not only did Israel bomb the press building in Gaza, that's was housing Al Jazeera and AP Press and others. Uh, they also bombed Gaza's largest bookstore. They bombed the homes of three of Gaza's most prominent doctors and the road to Gaza's main hospital. And obviously we can't forget that <laughs> we're. it's during the... Uh, COVID pandemic, which <laughs> has also, I mean, pre-existing medical apartheid. Uh, and then in East Jerusalem, as Samaya talked about, of course, weeks before this, the Israeli state, along with settlers, were ramping up their ethnic cleansing project to expel families from Sheikh Harrah. And at the same time, uh, Jewish-Israeli mobs were searching for Palestinians in East Jerusalem to, to attack or, or lynch them. And that's escalated to the point where in cities across Israel, Palestinian stores have been attacked, or even Palestinian homes broken in on, and and to the point where Palestinians in these areas are are trying to create, you know, self defense committees. But on the other hand, we're seeing, again, as Samaya talked about, unprecedented resistance by Palestinians across the West Bank and East Jerusalem and inside Israel or or what's not what's called 48 in a way that's uh, much more united and is breaking breaking through Israel's fragmentation uh, of the Palestinian people. So inside Israel, or 48, the best example might be uh, Lid, the city of Lid, which still has a large Palestinian population. Uh, and the uprising there reached the level of insurrection where the military came in to crush, you know, what they saw as a Palestinian uprising and takeover of the city. And, you know, across the West Bank, uh, when, it, Israel started incessantly bombing Gaza. Uh, Mass protests, uh, people were protesting at 3 a.m. in cities across the West Bank as Israel bombed Gaza, which was very uh, moving to watch. And then there was uh, the call for the general strike this past Tuesday, um, which seems like it was extremely successful. And Palestinian laborers in Israel, whether they're migrant workers from the West Bank or citizens of Israel, they... uh, in very large part, didn't show up to work, especially, and that especially affected, you know, um, certain sectors like construction, which is 50% uh, Palestinian workers, et cetera. So, as Samaya said, overall, you know, this is a level of unity across fragmented Palestine that we haven't seen in decades. It, some people are saying not since the 1936 to 39 Arab Revolt, Great Arab Revolt, it was called, uh, but certainly not since like the first and second intifadas of the late. 80s and 90s, but I also think um, I've been I've been studying the first intifada a bit. Uh, you know, the demand has actually changed now from from what from my vantage point at least. Um, so even though the, the first intifada was a momentous uprising and and that with the 36 to 39 revolt, perhaps the peak of Palestinian struggle. Um, at the same time, the first intifada, you know, it was uh, it. it its main drawback I'd say was the mini state concession. So the, the PLO really had conceded from its start that there would be a two state solution. So, and and back then the demand was really an end to the occupation. And now it's, I don't see that as the main demand. It's it's instead it's a demand to end the entire ethnic cleansing project and colonization and for full liberation. And I think that's why the addition of uh, folks in 48 or, Israel is so much more powerful because you can't just call for the end of the occupation. It's, it's so much more than that. I also, can I comment on what somebody was saying about the border, uh, protests? <laughs> I don't yeah, want to. Yeah, yeah, I think it was particularly moving for me, uh, and for many, many others to see the mass protests in Jordan, um, that broke through and, and crossed the border, uh, into Palestine on Nakba day, which was uh, the 15th. And then tens of protesters did the same in Lebanon. Uh, as Samaya said, this like, symbolizes the desire to, to return, the, the right of return for Palestinian refugees across the region and globally. But it also symbolizes that you know, an uprising is happening and that people are moved by the prospects of decolonization and, and liberation. And I think it's important to note that the last time this happened was 10 years ago, on uh, also on Nakba Day. And it was during the start of the Arab Spring or uh, Middle East, North Africa revolutions, as they're called which was a moment of regional uprising where there was, you know, the potential for regional decolonization and and liberation. So just from that, the fact that this hasn't happened in 10 years, those border uh, crossing protests, just from that, you know, we're witnessing something historic and that it is, in fact, an uprising. And I think it's also a reminder of how closely tied Palestine is to the region as a whole, how and how the impulse for Palestinian liberation is tied to broader struggles and, and the broader desire for freedom from tyranny and oppression and imperialism. You know, and w- we could also talk more about that. I mean, I think it's important to note that while there were protests in countries like uh across the region and the world. Uh, there actually weren't protests in Egypt, in, in Cairo, for mm-hmm, example, mm-hmm. or inside Syria's regime-controlled territory. And and that's not because the people there don't have an affinity towards Palestine, it, but it's because protests in solidarity with Palestine represent such a threat to those uh, counter-revolutionary regimes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, or even in, even in Bahrain also, that would be another place where you would have protests otherwise. Um, I would say like yesterday, I think there was the... In protesters in Haifa, I think were chanting the Hela Hela Ho" song that uh, the Lebanese people chanted about a year and a half ago, which was really funny for me yeah. to see. But it really shows that there are there is these you know cross border or even anti border, I would say, like you know exchanges mm-hmm. that are happening at that level. Yeah, I took a few notes down uh, just very briefly. Like um, Sumaya, you mentioned the Judaization projects, and I wanted to also emphasize that it's not just a term that we are using. This is a term that, like the actual NGOs that we're referencing, that's a term that they have themselves used. Uh, which I think surprises a lot of people when we actually you know I can I will li- literally just find the links of their own like uh, the description of their own websites that's a term that they themselves use uh, which really shows how comfortable they've been in terms of thinking that uh, you know there'll be total immunity at, at this kind of, of settler colonial project especially the more the most brazen uh, version of it um, another thing like both of you mentioned this and so I think we can get into this a bit more like just this um like this more intersectional approach that i think the three of us obviously would 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 adopt and many people are definitely adopting as well of like on the you know on the american side for example linking up to like black lives matter to to uh the decolon um decolonial projects or the decolonization efforts by a lot of indigenous folks um you know etc etc And then Shirin, you also mentioned uh, how like in the Middle East and North Africa, like the entire region, how it's also linked to a lot of the struggles that have for the most part been crushed in the past decade and what that actually means. Um, So, yeah, can we can we get a bit more into this? I don't know who wants to start on this.
2: Yeah, as Sumaya was saying, I think it can't be ignored that last summer was a summer of Black Lives Matter uprising that, you know, took the U.S., took a hold of the U.S., but also took on global dimensions and changed the conversation globally about the connections between colonialism and racial oppression today. You know, there was the taking down of statues in the UK, in the US, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and now we're seeing mass protests globally in, in support of Palestine and a changed conversation in, in the US about Palestine. So there's a new way of looking at colonialism and oppression that's becoming more uh, widespread and and Agreed upon, I guess. I just want to take us back to the strike for a second
1: because I actually think it's reported that millions participated in the strike, which mm. is which is historic, and that's an understatement. Um, millions across all of Occupy Palestine, um, and more than that, that it was called by youth. It wasn't called by any particular faction or political party. Mm. It was actually called from the ground, and that's who led it um, across the board. And in fact, there was a very conscious, there was a very conscious understanding that this is not linked to any of the so-called Palestinian leaders and and the parties that they represent. And even in Sheikh Jarrah, I think, you know, in Sheikh Jarrah during, it was like two weeks ago when when things were starting to hit the international news, when a, a representative of the PA was going to come visit and the Sheikh Jarrah community released a statement saying, we don't. We don't want anyone that works with and collaborates Israeli security to represent us to come here. And I think that is just so important because it also uh, right away, it makes it it ensures that any attempt at uh, negotiations. And I'm using scare quotes um, uh, will 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 not be taken seriously because who are you going to negotiate with? It's either the Palestinian people on the ground or no one is, is the message that that sent. Um, and also that all of this was unfolding in the lead up to the Nakba. I mean, Shireen, you mentioned Nakba. I think that's just so important mm-hmm. because it's saying it's been 73 years of Israel trying to erase Palestinians. Like that is the project: erase Palestinians. It's not integrate them and assimilate them. It's erase them. Right. Um, and yet Palestinians are persisting, um, and in fact are insisting that we're all Palestinians from the river to the sea, and in the diaspora. And the strike mm-hmm. manifesto that was that was put out. The statement. Um, it actually really um, emphasized that the Palestinians in the diaspora are just as Palestinian as Palestinians in mm-hmm. occupied Palestine, um, which which I also think is really important. Um, what was your question, Joey? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Intersectionality
2: well, of the struggles, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've been answering it anyway. Um, I would mention, hey, like, just to take us a bit forward. Um, like just it happened, you know, in 2014, of course, there were the Ferguson protests that were happening at the same time as the war in Reza. And that definitely led a lot of Palestinians and, you know, African-American activists and just allies all around to to link these things up in a more concrete ways. And I remember this very like Marianne Baruti, a good friend of mine, like she was mm-hmm. sharing tactics, you know, of what to do on the streets and other people were doing the same thing. Right. And, you know, all of these things. And um, I will mention, like, there's a book that I contributed to uh, called. Our social justice and Israel Palestine, and one of the chapters was specifically on the link between Black Lives Matter and 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 the Palestinian protests from a few years ago. And this is definitely something like now we saw like Black Lives Matter like releasing statements, of course Angela Davis and a number of other people, and it just become this more of a conscious thing. And as it happened, you know, of course the Black Lives Matter last last uh, last summer and. Just these links are being made more organically, which I definitely think is more interesting. So yeah, I mean that that was the question and you already started answering it. So if you want to continue, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I was I was thinking pretty much the same thing recently. Uh, seeing people on Facebook, my medium of choice, uh like Sean King, who has a massive following, uh posting about Palestine and how Israel's committing genocide, which I mean, I thought was a Uh, it's indicative of the changing conversation, but also I remembered Sean King speaking at Boston University, I would say around 2015, at a hugely, a packed panel on Black Lives Matter in Palestine, like the shared, the connections between Black and Palestinian liberation. So yeah, I I was thinking uh, efforts like this made a huge difference in where we are today in the conversation in the US. Um, You know, there were trips that brought Black activists to Palestine. And I know of Palestinian students and activists who were brought to Ferguson during its rebellion around 2014 and, and, and 2015. Um, and uh, you've mentioned how serious solidarity activists have been, you know, thinking about uh, these, you know, how the Palestine Solidarity Movement has made such momentum and, and movement. And yeah, I, I think other movements should look to this, you know, decades long effort by Palestinians and, you know, other activists in the US that have finally brought us to this point. Um, since I've done some serious solidarity work in depth as well, I've I've sometimes come across like an, a sort of impatience, which of course is justified in the sense that, you know, when it comes to Syria, there's been a massive catastrophe and genocide largely ignored, but there's an impatience in terms of activism in the US, like, you know, why aren't fo- folks on board? But it takes, as we see from the Palestinian uh, effort, it, it takes years of making these connections.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, and there's really no alternative to that. you know, we're we're pushing back on so many dominant narratives, whether it's like Islamophobia, racism, bad ideas about imperialism, you know, isolation and lack of historical knowledge, and a lot of bad ideas on the left, even even when it comes to Palestine, there are a lot of bad ideas on the on the left uh, that we have to fight through. Um, it sometimes feels like, you know, we have no time. There's ca- these catastrophes happening now and, and we need to act. But at the same time, the, the you know, the struggle for liberation is, is going to take a long time and building those connections and building the movements, uh, and and that's what's going to eventually bring our liberation. Not there are no shortcuts, basically.
0: Yeah, for sure. So Maya?
2: yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, you know, you both mentioned the the connection to Black Lives Matter and uh, Ferguson, which I think is very powerful. And the statement that Black Lives Matter the movement for Black Lives released, I believe, at the end of 2016, um, where it called Israel's project a genocide. I think was a big breaking point. And it was a whole platform that they released and Palestine was one small part of it. And yet that small part made front page news across the board. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they just released another statement in solidarity with Palestine and drawing on the connections that I think is is very important and powerful um, because of you know the, the very direct relationship, right? The fact that police in this country are trained there especially in, in the big metropolises mm-hmm. like New York City and Los Angeles and Chicago. Um, and they use the same type of weapons and military tactics, etc. Um, but more than that, because when you when you saw the images coming out of Sheikh Jarrah, when you see the way the soldiers and the police were beating up Palestinians, young, old men, women, doesn't matter, in the street, I mean, you can't not think of um, um, Ferguson, you can't not think of Minneapolis, uh, Standing Rock, um, mm-hmm. and, and the list goes on. So I think that, that was really important. I think also the fact that Um, COVID in the last year, coupled with the last decade of austerity in the US and elsewhere, has made people really fed up with the government Mm -hmm. and really untrusting of what they say. And the same lines that they keep repeating to sort of uh, just quell people and and, um, squash dissent, etc. That makes people think more like, okay, you know, I see this happening. I, I, the, the, the justifications that are constantly given to me no longer really hold water, right? The the idea that Palestinians are the aggressors and instigators, um, the idea that the whole terrorism charge, I mean, even with um, Hamas right now, you know, when when people are like, okay, well, what about Hamas? What about Hamas? I actually think that's losing water too. I don't mm-hmm. think it's, if three years ago, right now what is happening, you wouldn't have as much of an outcry um, um, when, when uh, Hamas started shooting rockets. I mean, the, the what was what was just introduced to Congress yesterday in the House, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Atlayib and Mark Pocan, the resolution they introduced to stop this arms sale, this latest arms sale to Israel, $735 million, um, that happened right like after, right after the assault on Gaza. And I think that that's, that's really, really important and that that is indicative of a much larger shift. Um, I think COVID and the way that the government has dealt with COVID and, um, you know, just the, the disaster that unfolded in the last year in the US and that is unfolding elsewhere in the world right now is also uh, another reason why people are a lot more, uh, are, are instinctually siding with Palestinians um, and, and choosing to uplift that. And, and maybe this is different, but I, but I think all of this, or maybe you're gonna ask this in a bit, Joey, but I think all of this is part of the shift that we're seeing in the US elsewhere, but in the US in particular, where often the, the Zionist narrative is strongest and has is so powerful um, on on a number of levels.
0: No, for sure. I will. Def- I wanted to ask a question about the shift of narratives, and we'll focus on the US since you're, you're both based there. Um, in Europe, it's definitely been much slower, and I think um, like we're seeing some stuff in the UK. We're seeing some stuff in in France, but like it's it's kind of a mixed bag. And you know, maybe I'll do some episode on that more specifically at some point. I would briefly say though, like. <clears throat> On the matter of like the exchanges that or the 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 fact that governments are actually learning from one another as well, like you mentioned the example of of like American and Israeli cops basically exchanging information, actually, you know, training one another and, and that sort of thing. But there's also like many other things that um often not really talked about as much like I just wrote actually some of them down. That I just, you know, remembered off the spot of like Uh, The UAE uses Israeli intelligence software, for example, to spy on its own citizens. Um, Ahmed Mansour was a famous case a couple of years ago, and he's still in prison now. Um, Russia uses Israeli drones in Syria. Uh, China has, um, the Chinese government has used Israeli police tactics uh, in their quote-unquote fight against terrorism, uh, literally using like the Israelis' lessons of how to repress Palestinians and how to do so the same with the, with the Uyghurs, just a number of other things that I'm sure I'm forgetting. Some, some other stuff are like more obvious stuff, like, you know, Israel and France, you know, buying weapons, or Egypt with the, the Israeli government, or Turkey with the Israeli government for that matter as well, you know, all of these things. And so part of what I'm trying to do, or like what other people also are trying to do is just point these out more consciously, especially when these governments are then trying to use Palestine to whitewash what they themselves try to do within their own territories or even abroad, like in the case of Russia. Because it has led to a lot of these, you know, Shirin, you referenced this, a lot of these bitterness in activist circles that I really think we need to be very conscious of and very careful with because it ends up being a um, How do you say this?
2: holding us
0: back at least yeah definitely holding us back and like uh, comparing sufferings and that's something that I, I really think is is should be avoided and and we need to be very conscious that people will end up doing this if we, we don't um you know we're not very careful with this at least that's something i focus on i don't necessarily think everyone mm-hmm. should focus on this um but yeah i mean to go back to the shift of narratives um it is i think like it's it's valuable to kind of uh, dwell on this a bit more uh if that's okay like just the fact that so just a bit of context. I wrote um, my dissertation in 2016, uh, which was on um, the politics of Yiddish and Hebrew within um, like broadly defined like Zionist discourse or even anti-Zionist discourse in some cases. Mm-hmm. And at the time, of course, the elections were happening in the US. And it just so happened that I mean, pretty much the only major um, Jewish candidate, uh, Bernie Sanders was also the only one who didn't go to AIPAC. And I remember this being a massive, massive thing at the time, like just something that everyone was talking about and everything. And of course, like, I'm, you know, lots of critiques towards Bernie as well, but this is something that was definitely significant. And since then we just saw, you know, from Jewish Voice for Peace to If Not Now, to other groups that I'm definitely not remembering right now and this more conscious rejection of the Israeli state's attempt to essentially say that it is the state of all Jews and just having like this conscious. Um, yeah, I mean, just that I'm kind of repeating myself and how this actually intersected at the same time with the you know Ferguson protests first and then with with Black Lives Matter more broadly and how this ended up being like uh, I'm hearing a lot of statements by like Jewish Americans. Uh, referencing Black Lives Matter in condemning the Israeli government's actions. And I think that's that's really, really powerful. So can we dwell on this a bit more? Like, what can what, what can you tell us from your side of what you've been seeing?
1: I can start. I mean, I think one of the things you alluded to this, Joey, right now is there's a break with Zionism. There's a major break with Zionism that's unfolding in the United States um, and just growing and growing. And I think that's massive because... Right away, what that does is it undercuts the argument that standing in solidarity with Palestinians, that supporting Palestinian rights, that demanding an end to occupation to settler colonialism means you're anti-Semitic. It destroys that argument completely. Um, And more and more groups have adopted uh, anti-Zionism. So Jewish Voice for Peace in 2017 officially adopted it. Um, Other large groups are right now in conversation about coming out publicly against Zionism. Um, But I think that's really important because it also means that when elected officials, when celebrities, when um, other other uh, political figures uh, with a lot of following want to speak out in solidarity, they know that they can fall back on the fact that actually it's not all Jewish people that are Zionists. Actually, in fact, many are saying they're anti-Zionist, that Israel doesn't get to speak on behalf of all Jewish people. So I think that's one of the biggest shifts um, in in the U.S. in, in, in the Jewish community. Um, I think the another uh, is the the ability to draw these organic connections between Palestine and a number of other social justice struggles in the US that have been growing from immigration to anti-war to Black Lives Matter, um, and the list goes on. Uh, Climate crisis, for example, climate justice work um, has also made Palestine uh, increasingly in the mainstream and less of a fringe issue. Um, because it's tied with all of these. And of course, this has everything to do with decades and decades of Palestine activists insisting on this work despite facing deportations, despite, despite facing you know, losing their jobs, et cetera. Um, I think another, another shift that we're seeing or a result of this is what's happening in Congress, right? These are the places where Palestinians are heard least if at all. Um, and yet what we saw last Thursday was multiple members of Congress on the floor meaning everything they say is put into the congressional record, um, speaking up for Palestine. And not like hollow slogans about Palestinian rights, but actually much further than that, right? Like Rashida Tlaib talking about her family under occupation, Um, uh, Ayanna Pressley talking about, you know, what are our values if we're funding this? Sure, some of it has the same liberal rhetoric that we're used to, but the fact that it's happening now and uh, the, 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 the messaging that's used I think is really different. The fact that like we're using words like ethnic cleansing and apartheid. We're not just talking about um, occupation or rights, but, but really naming exactly what is happening. And to be honest, I think one of the most powerful speeches from the one in Congress was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's because it directly connects what's happening in Palestine to US imperialism. Um, and I think that's one, one of the arguments we have really been trying to push in the Palestine mm-hmm. rights movement. And actually, if if I have time, can I read it? Because I can I read an excerpt of it because yeah, I think absolutely, it's really absolutely. powerful. And again, this is not to say that, you know, there's no critis- critics, criticisms that we have of all these people, but it's in this context that the power of these words, I think is really important. So here's what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said. She said, my family comes from the island of Puerto Rico and I grew up visiting my family on the island where the United States bombed its own territories. And I would go to sleep as a little girl to the sound of U.S. bombs detonating. Practice is what it was called at the time. Practice. And when I saw those airstrikes that are supported with U.S. funds, she means in Gaza, I could not help but wonder if our communities were practiced for this. This is our business because we are playing a role in it, end quote. I think it's powerful. One, because it connects to U.S. imperialism directly. It's mm-hmm. saying what the U.S. was doing in Puerto Rico and is still doing this in Puerto Rico was this practice for what's happening in Gaza. And the second is because it um, it um, it responds to all of the arguments that why should we care about what's happening in Palestine, right? Oftentimes that's that's what we hear. What do we have to do with it? Why don't we care about what's happening in the U.S. And it's like, no, actually, this is our business because we're funding it, because we're allowing it to happen with our material support. And the the whole material support argument, I also think is important because what the U.S. has done for decades is used this idea of material support for terrorism to imprison and to um, uh, um, surveil and to deport so many um, Muslims and Arabs in the United States. Um, under the guise of material support for terrorism. So the Holy Land Five are a good example, right? These five people that were raising money for backpacks and school supplies for people in Gaza and who were thrown in jail. And two of them are serving 65 years in jail until now they're still in prison. Meanwhile, the US gives Israel $3.8 billion a year that we know goes to buying the weapons that are now, and the bombs that are now falling on Palestinians in Gaza um, and killing them. And there's, there's no talk about how that's, support for the settler colonial regime. So I think, I think there's definitely shifts. The resolution that was introduced um, and that Bernie Sanders actually just signed on to as well as bringing to the Senate floor today, um, calls for uh, halting this latest ship, shipment of weapons or weapons sales. Congress has 10 days, 10 business days to vote on this. Um, so I think the next 10 days are really critical in figuring out how do we pressure the Senate to, to not let this deal go through, not because, our liberation is you know bound up or wound up with what the senate does no it's it's a lot more than that but if this doesn't go through that's a that's a major signal to israel that it actually can't act with impunity that there are consequences that mm-hmm. we're at a moment where we can hold israel accountable the potential for that right now is huge and it's just a matter of how do we seize this opportunity and continue to build momentum and not let it die down
2: yeah um i think Just, I think this goes well into what's the role of the left in the current moment. Um, So I think, you know, last week Biden called Netanyahu and then said that he's in total support of Israel. And this week he said, he he called Israel and said, hey, maybe tone it down a little. (laughs) I mean, paraphrasing there, but basically what's going on in Congress, etc., is a reflection of our movements on the street and, and. What we need to do to pressure them, I think, is, you know, keep the hundreds of thousands. Apparently, there were two hundred fifty thousand people marching in in Michigan in Detroit uh, a few days ago. Um, so our our job is is to keep the pressure going in the streets. I, I actually have uh, several things to say about um, the role of the left right now. Um, I I think you know the changing conversation on Palestine might actually be able to push much larger segment of, of the population, at least in the U S to to the left in, in terms of the relationship with Biden, because, you know, Biden was seen as this alternative to Trump, uh, as, I mean, you know, they're, they're, uh, as, uh, almost our saving grace in one, in, in a certain sense. Um, but now we've seen, you know, he's, he's been in Michigan and there were about a thousand people protesting against him in Michigan because of, uh, because of his inability to do anything because of him <laughs> giving an arms sale of uh, or, or trying to give an arms sale of three seven hundred thirty five million dollars worth to Israel while they're bombing Gaza. So this is a chance to actually push back against him, which I think is is huge and necessary um, in terms of what you were saying earlier about um, the interconnection, whether it's the police, you know, there's also uh, G4S, HP, these corporations that profit off of uh, the prison system in, in the U.S., in Israel, etc., or the um, shared technology between the U.S.-Mexico border. But all of that po- uh, points uh, what, what Samaya was talking about, you know, the, the role of Israel or, or the connection between Israel and imperialism and the role of Israel globally as like what my chapter in the book was about, uh, Israel as is the watchdog for US imperialism. And it has been that way since its inception pretty much, you know, when the US couldn't openly sell weapons to uh, reactionary regimes in Latin America or globally, really, they, they had Israel do that. Um, so I think that's also one of our, the big roles for, for socialists right now is, is making that connection to imperialism yeah, and and the you know the call for BDS is already being put forward, but we have to make the the demand that not just, I mean Bernie has said things like reassess U.S. aid to Israel or or uh, put, uh, I'm forgetting my my terminology, um, but we need to demand a total end to it. Um, let's see.
0: Uh, you mean like not not just conditioned aid, but like completely just cut it off.
2: Yes, yes, yes. Not condition. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the term. But I also think we have to put forward as socialists, like that we need mass movements here to end this U.S.-Israel relationship. You know, AOC, uh, what she's doing. It is unprecedented. It is a f- the first time this is happening. But that might start. You know, the the sale of 735 million dollar sale of, of weapons. But that's not going. That's not enough to end the U.S.-Israel relationship, which is steeped in imperialism, as Samaya said. And so a change to that requires, you know, a change to the US also as an imperial superpower, which would need a mass uprising here, if not an end to the Democratic Party and the, the two party system as a whole. And I think, you know, that might sound uh, far-fetched, but we see it's it's not entirely impossible there. You know, we had an, a mass uprising across the US last summer and now we're having, uh, if, if it continues, this is a movement that's uh, taking shape right now. Um, Yeah, in in addition to that, I I think, you know, we also have to push in terms of what we're pushing for on the left, or or as Palestine solidarity activists, we have to push for a revival of of BDS in many ways, and a revival of our movements. I, I think they really actually took a hit during the Trump presidency. For example, a lot of Students for Justice in Palestine chapters sort of went underground because of the level of repression, and there were, you know, um, anti-BDS laws uh, being put forward, et cetera. So, for example, but you know, it's really possible to 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 put forward BDS right now in the current moment, while the conversation is changing. So, for example, in Boston, we have uh, a chapter. We, I mean. It's, it's one of its kind, it's BDS Boston. And for three years, uh, the group fought for Cambridge City Council to, to put forward a resolution to cut ties with Hewlett Packard because they provide um, technology for uh, the Israeli military. And, and that came under horrific backlash in around 2018 or 19. But in the past week, a DSA council person actually brought the resolution back So it's back on the table because of Israel's latest bombardment of Gaza and because of the the conversation changing right now and the attention on Israel's crimes right now. Um, So we have to see what will happen with this particular resolution, but I think it shows that, you know, there's an opening to actual, for actual uh, on the ground efforts to put BDS into into practice. Uh, But you might be surprised to know that BDS Boston is the is one of the only BDS campaigns or chapters in the entire US. So there's massive, you know, support for it. Uh, But conversation alone, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Conversation alone is not enough. Uh, The BDS movement in the US is actually much weaker than in um, Europe or other parts of the world. In terms yeah. of actual divestment and cutting ties, um, I, I could also <laughs> I could say more. As socialists, you know, um, as socialists, we also have to make you know the argument we make in in the book that Samaya co-edited and I contributed to is the understanding of Palestinian liberation as you know um, tied to to the regional regional liberation tied to an understanding of imperialism as you know not just U.S. imperialism but uh, the way that the, the current stage of imperialism globally i guess you would say i don't know i don't know if you want to talk more about the the left it's 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 interesting being at protests right now because you know being in the dsa but for example in boston we've we're managing to bring more and more dsa folks out to to these protests uh, so mm-hmm. we and dsa is the
0: democratic socialists of america for those who don't know
2: yes 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 and it's it's sort of an effort to uh reorient DSA because DSA can often be focused on the electoral aspect or who who are we going to get into office uh, that's a socialist. But now we're saying, you know, we need people on the street to show that we support Palestine and to be part of this movement. So that's an argument we're making. And at the same time, you see other socialist groups like... uh, (laughs) Uh, I was very frustrated, frustrated seeing groups like Socialist Alternative, who have the analysis that we push back against in the book, uh, uh, with a chapter about the Israeli working class. But they still think, you know, Israel's working class is is uh, is a potential potentially progressive force, which I think completely overlooks what's happening on the ground. And and they and because of this, they're against BDS. So there's a lot of work. Uh, I mean, we see overall the left being so uh, in support of Palestine, but there's actually a lot of work to be done still, of course. And then there are other groups like PSL, um, (laughs) which... you know, sees U.S. imperialism as the major imperialist force and is against the Syrian revolution, et cetera. And that's where, again, we need socialists who are saying, actually, we need an end to the regimes across the Middle East that are colluding with Israel in one way or another, or preventing their people from rising up in solidarity with Palestine. Um, and that needs to be part of the analysis. I've definitely gone on too long. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's fine. Thanks for that. Maya?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um... I'll pick up where Shireen left off. I mean, I think that we need to definitely connect Palestine to all of these other um, anti-imperialist struggles in the region and beyond. And I think Palestinians on the ground have actually been doing that online and and, um, when speaking to the media, you know, connecting Palestine to Syria, to Western Sahara, to Yemen, to Afghanistan, um, which is really key and really important because it also forces all of those not in Palestine to reckon with the fact that this is what Palestinians are saying. They are making those connections. They're saying it's not just us. Um, and they're de-exceptionalizing what's happening. There's nothing new about what Israel is doing. It's something that's been done again and again and again. Um, I think another thing is that uh, Jihad Abu Salim, uh, who's a Palestinian from Gaza, uh, currently based in the US, also pointed out to me, we were talking the other day, how during the protests at last week, there were Syrian revolution flags flying. You know, people are making the connection between Palestine and Syria. So that's this is not this is not new. This is not something being imposed. This is something organic that 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 people are calling for. I think that you know, before talking about what we need to do, I want to preface it by saying that in the U.S., the attacks on the Palestine movement, on Palestine solidarity, are very vicious. More so than in other places, um, they not only exist. Um, they not only exist on the ground, so like in campuses and. Um, within organizations and communities, um, but they actually exist on the the federal level. So there are over 200 laws right now uh, attempting to criminalize Palestine advocacy. 23% of them have passed, and there's new laws that are expected to go into that to be introduced this year that would actually, in some states, would have any sort of criticism of Israel and Zionism be considered not just um, hate speech, but potentially a hate crime, and that's a federal offense. And this is just a simple statement like Israel is an apartheid state could be considered a hate crime. Um, and there's there's no reason to think that these are just gonna disappear because the movement is growing. Because what we're seeing is that, sure, the movement is growing, there's more people, uh, more and more celebrities and elected officials are, um, are speaking out publicly, but US policy remains the same. It hasn't wavered yet. Whether or not this, this uh, resolution to stop this arms sales goes through, that might be one of the first times that we're actually able to uh, influence policy in that way. Um, and of course, there's social media censorship. So I'm sure everyone's heard about this already, but in the last three weeks alone, this has been happening for years, but in the last three weeks, the amount of censorship on Facebook and on Instagram um, has has really, has felt unprecedented. I don't have the data to back up to say whether or not it's unprecedented, but it certainly has felt unprecedented where Palestinians on the ground in Sheikh Jarrah um, or in Haifa or in Gaza could not do Instagram live streams, could not post videos, had their accounts taken down. Um, you know they were um, what is it called shadow shadow banned, which basically just means it's hard to you Design can't access them. their yeah. stories. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And a lot of these were just people, just videos showing the police brutality, showing exactly what was happening. Um, so social media censorship is is a is a really big part of uh, one of the ways to sort of clamp down on the the growing Palestine movement um, and just in general growing solidarity, especially as we've seen so many so many celebrities, people that have never spoken out. Come out in support of Palestine. And not, again, not in like a hollow, we support Palestinian rights, but actually using words like ethnic cleansing, using words like apartheid. Um, and of course, you know, three weeks ago, was it just three weeks ago? I think it was just three weeks ago that Human Rights Watch released their 213 page report, uh, formally accusing Israel or charging Israel with apartheid and persecution. And more than that, um, also talking about the corruption in the PLO. Um, and I think most importantly, actually calling for sanctions, recommending to the United Nations that sanctions should be applied on Israel. And I think this, this is huge because not because it's new. We've been saying it for decades. I mean, every Palestinian you ask will say, hey, we've been saying this for over 73 years. Um, but because it 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 gives us more, um, it gives us more to fall back on. Right. More evidence. The, the more we say this, the more people are saying this from different directions, uh, the more likely we're going to be able to, to hold Israel accountable. Uh, so the left, the left in the US, yes, I think that there's so much opportunity and potential right now. Um, for a lot of the reasons shitty laid out, you know, there's there's an actual left in the United States right now, which there, there hadn't been for many decades. It's still small, but it exists and it's growing. And I think Democratic Socialists of America is a big part of that. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's around 90,000 right now and, and still growing. And the majority of those members joined in the last two to three years. Um, And I think what that means is, you know, we need to organize in our unions to divest from Israel, uh, from Israeli bonds. Many of the largest unions in the U.S. are still invested in Israeli bonds. Um, I think we need to call for sanctions. I think the U.S., we need to pressure the U.S. to call for sanctions on Israel. And I don't think if you'd asked me five years ago, I would have honestly thought this to be like a very lofty dream that would happen decades down the line. But I think right now it seems very possible, very real, both because of the movements on the ground that are unified and that are calling for this, um, and because of uh, the, the very rapid growth of the, the Palestine Solidarity Movement globally, but particularly in the U.S. I think in the U.S. it's actually different from all the other countries because of the, the importance of the U.S.-Israel relationship, right? Like the U.S. gives Israel, um, uh, it, it basically paid for the Iron Dome, first of all, um, it's the it's Israel's single largest arms arms supplier, um, and it's constantly diverting any attempt to hold Israel accountable in the UN or any other body. So I think in the US we have a very particular role to play. So sanctions. Uh, I think another thing is uh, BDS, um, the the B and the D part, the boycott and divestments um, on campuses, um, in workplaces, um, etc. is is really really key, and I think all of this plays into you know, how we influence policy directly. Um, because at the end of the day, it does make a difference when there's someone like AOC and Rashid al or Ilhan Omar in Congress. Like, it makes a difference when you have those people saying what we want them to say. Um, and they don't say it overnight. They say it after, you know, a lot of conversations and pressure and people organizing on the ground. But it makes a very big difference. Um, and, and, you know, the the photo that came out, was it Friday or Saturday of Rashid al confronting Joe Biden on the tarmac in Michigan. I mean, this is a US member of Congress confronting the president on the tarmac, saying stop supplying the arms that are killing my family. Um, it, it's, uh, these are historic, I think, on so many levels. Um, and I think it's important to point that out and, and think about how do we how do we grow that and sort of make the most out of that. And then I think the the other thing that, that I'll say is, in the US in particular, um, is really growing the, the anti-Zionist movement um, and thinking about how we uh, use that terminology to build for what Palestinians are calling for. Um, not, you know, it's not just apartheid, it's ethnic cleansing, it's not just apartheid, it's settler colonialism, um, and calling for full decolonization, not just part, um, and, and really cutting back against the fragmentation, the abstract and geographic fragmentation that Israel is using to. To control Palestinians and, and entrench its project. Um, I guess, yeah, I, you know, I think there's a lot of potential for the left, but I think it's a it's a question of how quickly can we organize to use this moment because we're not going to have it for very much longer. We all know that it's usually when a ceasefire is called, things die down and go back to the status quo, which for Palestinians yeah. is yeah. just the everyday brutality of occupation. And so it's a question of how do we use this right now to to really push for calls for sanction for BDS.
0: Etc. Yeah, I will just briefly say, um, so a number of things, A, you mentioned also the climate movement, I forgot to mention it before, Uh, I was happily surprised to see that the Fridays for Future uh, coalition has basically uh, put out a statement, uh, like essentially saying that they support Palestine against ethnic cleansing and all of that, which I was really happy to see, and they actually problematizes themselves, like even asking the question in advance, like why is the climate group talking about Palestine, they attempted to to answer it. And I think that that's a very important conversation to have, especially in the context of Israel's whole, you know, myth of greening the desert and all of that. I think that's a really important thing. I'll definitely have an episode specifically on that. On the apartheid um, question, Human Rights Watch's report is, of course, very important. It followed like, you know, Beth Senem said that a few years ago and other groups uh, across the world have said this before. And of course, Palestinian groups have been saying it for a longer time. But Human Rights Watch saying it is, has, of course, its, its impact. Um, last Sunday, I spoke with a friend of mine who is Maya on this podcast, uh, who is uh, South African and she's also Jewish. Um, and she managed to, I think, elaborate in very specific ways Uh, how the comparison to apartheid, uh, like basically its limitations. So like, yes, it is absolutely apartheid, but as you also said, Sumaya, like it is also more than that. And they're very, like the, I mean, all comparison, like no comparison is ever perfect, of course. It is useful in as much as given that there is the crime of apartheid and persecution as as human rights said, which is a very specific legal crime, uh, then that is, you know, something that can be um, campaigned on essentially, which is very important um but there's also the the next steps to to be taken which i think palestinians of course very well tuned to and you know somebody you mentioned it right now so i just wanted to to add that as well so i mean to kind of we're winding down a bit but i would like just maybe a few more thoughts on your sides uh in terms of uh i mean you know if if there's anything i may have missed to tackle if there's anything you wanted to expand upon a bit more before we sort of wrap up to get into the you know the book section of the the episode
1: sure so I, every time I'm having one of these conversations, after I speak, I'm like, wow, there's a million things that I forgot to say. And I think it's because, one, the, the richness of what Palestinians how Palestinians resist and like the myriad of ways that that they do. And also the brutality of what Israel's is doing and the myriad of ways they creatively come up with with um, methods of, of um, oppressing Palestinians. But I wanted to actually share, you know, um, yesterday a 17-year-old Palestinian was shot and killed. Um, he was actually, sh- he was shot and killed on the day of the strike on, on Tuesday. Sorry, he was shot on the day of the strike on Tuesday, and, and he succumbed to his wounds yesterday. He's 17 years old. His name is Mohammed Mahmoud Kiwan. And uh, Palestinians in 48 organized uh, a, a very large rally and demonstration in March for his funeral, uh, which was today. And there were thousands of people at his funeral and they all chanted um, in unison. And I actually want to read the chant. It's in Arabic, so I'll I'll translate it. Um, We were not born to live in degradation. We were born to live in freedom. Um, And I think that that is really emblematic of everything that Palestinians from the river to the sea, from Gaza to the West Bank, Jerusalem um, in 48, and in the diaspora, um, that that is the root of our struggle is that we want to live free, we just want to live, right, we just don't want to live every day just trying to survive to the next but actually want to live in freedom. Um, and I think that's the call that people all over the world right now are are demanding, uh, as, as they suffer from COVID, as they suffer, suffer from austerity, um, and and from settler colonialism in, in a number of different places. So I wanted to share that. And I also want to share that, um, you know, this goes back to the shift, so so I apologize that I'm saying it now. but just a decade ago, a little over a decade ago, you couldn't really say Palestine or Palestinians on uh, mainstream news. It would be edited out, um, or it would have to come with some sort of qualification. Uh, and now we have Palestinians uh, saying what they want to say in their own words um, on on in the mainstream. And I think that, that that is really, really indicative of the shift that is happening. Um, I also want to say that as exciting as it is as inspiring, um, uh, you know, all of this is, at the same time, we're, we're nowhere near where we need to be. Like there's there's so much that needs to be done. It's not gonna be as simple as like in a year, there's a chance Palestine will be free. Um, I think that we're, we are in a new chapter, as the strike manifesto says, this is a new chapter that we're writing and it's an important one, mm-hmm. but it also really necessitates that everyone understand the urgency of this moment, um, the urgency of this potential, not just for Palestinian freedom, But actually, for liberation across the region um, in the Middle East and North Africa and here in the United States, I mean, what it would mean to to fully cut ties with Israel and the US to uncover all of these arms deals, these surveillance deals and technology deals that has huge ramifications on a number of struggles in the United States as well. Um, And the US is, you know, remains the, the most powerful imperial country in the world. So anything that happens here will have ripple effects around the
0: world for sure just to add to what you just said i mean it wasn't that long ago that you know netanyahu went to to congress and got more standing ovations than than mm-hmm. even obama did during his own you know so it, it is pretty significant that i'm seeing people like Nura, like mariam like a number of other people on 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 these media outlets um and i think Nura herself mentioned that she would actually be allowed to talk and they would be like sympathetic and they in the it's it's it says a lot i think that you know uh I think that we just our expectations have gotten so low, essentially, that even this is 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 amazing. And I mean, not that it isn't uh, significant in itself, but there is a bit of a bittersweet um, aspect aspect to it as well. Um, but yeah, just wanted to add that.
1: Can I add something real quick? So news was actually apparently um, a ceasefire has been agreed to for tomorrow morning mm. between Hamas and Israel, um, okay. and That's I, I think idea. that a lot of that has to do with a number of things but i think it's important to say that the the this resolution that was introduced by these members of congress and bernie i think have the effect of applying pressure on israel because if something like this passes and gains traction it sets a precedent for other arms deals not to go through um, other actions at, you know, I'm, I'm sure you all heard about the the ship in in Italy, mm-hmm. um, and then the one in the Bay Area where workers were trying to organize not to unload um, or load ships with with arms going straight to Israel. So, I, you know, I, the the hope is that despite this ceasefire, which of course is good, that momentum doesn't die down and that the urgency of of what is happening in Palestine continues and that we don't, that people don't only care when Gaza is being carpet bombed, but they also care when Gaza is under siege, when Palestinians are forced out of their homes, um, when the ethnic cleansing project continues um, and it's uh, in all the other ways.
0: And not to mention that like, given that it's tomorrow morning, it might actually mean that tonight might, might also be very terrifying. So people should really not forget that as well.
2: Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for all that, Samaya. Um, I really agreed with what you said about You know, this is, we're about to reach uh, liberation. We still have so much work to do. Um, I think what we're seeing right now, just to reiterate, you know, the colonizer is getting more and more violent. Uh, You know, it's the most brutal bombardment of Gaza, more brutal than 2009, 2012, 2014. You know, it's hard to imagine the brutality keeps getting uh, more intense. And we can expect, unfortunately, like it's horrific, but we can expect more of that. Um, so on the one hand, the colonizer is getting more violent. And on the other hand, our side is just starting to cohere, but with a uh, uh, higher expectation for what liberation is going to be. And but on the other hand, you know, we saw, as I think you mentioned, Somaya, it's mostly uh, protest and in, in a youth led effort in Sheikh Jarrah and in, in across cities in in Inside 48 or Israel, uh, it has been largely youth led and that's allowed, you know, reject rejecting the concessions that the political parties have made, whether in the first Intifada, as I mentioned, or in, in many other instances um, and saying, you know, our, our vision of liberation is so much bigger than that, but still there's so much work to be done just to cohere. And this is not just in Palestine, it's also here, it's also across the Middle East, like, what is our side going to look like? How are we going to build Towards power, you know, we're just starting to see a left in the U.S. in the DSA, and we're just starting to figure it out. Yes, we have uh, the DSA has been invaluable, of course. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, Samaya, but we're still figuring it out, figuring out, you know, what's our best route to to um, actual changes on the ground and to actual power. Which, again, I would say is keep building our movement, make it sustained, as you said, Samaya. And our job as socialists, again, is just keep these connections going. Um, I guess I wanted to mention, you know, there there weren't protests inside regime Syria, but there were protests in Idlib, which is uh, what they call rebel-held or, or non-regime Syria. There were mass protests in solidarity. So paying attention to the, the regional aspect, which, again, is in a period of despair. <laughs> we can't romanticize that. and And there needs to be yeah, we need to be in a much stronger position in the U.S., in Palestine and globally to actual, actually get to, to that uh, liberation that we wanna see. Um, I wrote down three books, but this isn't one of them, but I just read or reread Freedom is a Constant Struggle and I was reminded of that. Uh, it's talks and interviews with Angela Davis about
0: mm-hmm. Palestine
2: and black liberation um, and just showing how yeah. deeply tied together they are.
0: And- so just before we before we get into the book section, just very quickly, I'll say that uh, that uh, in Beirut as well there were protests yesterday for Palestine, and if I'm not mistaken, today as well, probably as we're recording or a bit earlier, uh, and they they meet like extreme pressure. Uh, the numbers are definitely smaller than they would otherwise. Of course, as you mentioned, Smire, a few days ago, there were the, the the attempts to basically get to the border, which was stopped because there's the. It's a UN zone, especially in the army stops people, uh, stops non Lebanese specifically, I have to say, Lebanese people are technically allowed to pass. Uh, but anyway, so just to emphasize that even in the context of Lebanon, where like the state of Lebanon is technically in a state of war with Israel and one would think, I mean, people who don't know the context would assume that maybe, you know, this the population is more sympathetic or, I'm not population, that the, pol- the political class is more sympathetic or not, but they're actually not. And they're just using it for their own purposes. I'm not gonna get into the Hezbollah stuff for now. I rant about them okay. elsewhere but it's 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 something that palestinians in lebanon definitely have to deal with significantly more um and yeah i just wanted to emphasize that as well Mm
1: -hmm. yeah definitely i think i'll I'll just one thing that's that i've really noticed this is about the this is back to the shift Um, i'm new to twitter i joined twitter in december and, and i suddenly feel like it's a whole world that um i've been missing out on for good or for bad i don't know but um I think what's increasingly become clear, at least in the US, with the last month in particular, is there's no longer a middle ground. You either support Palestinians and their demands for freedom, or you justify what Israel is doing. There's no yes to this and yes to this and but, or it's it's really those two, because there's the, the excuse of ignorance really falls flat. I mean, Palestine has been pushed to the mainstream in the last few weeks in the United States. Um, you've heard about it one way or another, even if you don't know any of the details you've heard about it. And so your choice to be silent is either a choice to be silent because you agree with what Israel is doing um, and you just don't care. You don't care about Palestinians dying in the hundreds um, or it's out of fear. And if it's the latter, I think hopefully that that will, you'll overcome that slowly because of how fast the movement is growing and how robust it is and how unapologetic it is in its demands. But I think that's where we are in the U.S. It, It really is, you're with the oppressor or you're with the oppressed there's, mm-hmm. there's no middle ground to yeah. navigate
2: right yeah i think you know mohammed al-kurd he's been one of the leaders in in uh sheikh sharrah he said very bluntly you're if you, you're either an unapologetic racist or, or you're uh, with palestinians um and i think that's a lesson that's something that i mean that's the reason for me palestine is at the center of of my politics, and that's like that's why it's almost a guide to other struggles that you need to uh, co- uh, see is so connected. You're either with the oppressed or with the oppressor. It's it's that simple. It's that simple when it comes to Syria too. That's the framework that we need to to use.
0: Mm-hmm. No, definitely, and you know, thanks for that. I think that's really good note to kind of end ish on. But let, let's get to the book section. I kind of I always love this section. So, what are three books that you two would recommend and and why?
2: Okay, um, obviously I said freedom is a constant struggle, but I wrote down three others. So Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine, which describes how neoliberalism came into place through massive violence worldwide, partly led by the US. Um, Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire by Deepa Kumar. Uh, I think it explains you know, so much of how things came to be today uh, from a political, historical, and sort of political economy perspective. Uh, including the Arab states' relationships with you know, the Muslim Brotherhood, et cetera, and how these states and the US also saw Islamists as like less of a threat than the progressive left. Uh, so they focused on crushing the left, but allowed Islamists to grow, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it breaks through essentialism around Islam and the idea of the Muslim world, and it shows that phenomena today are you know, a product of imperialism and political choices. And then finally, A Woman in the Crossfire, Diaries of the Syrian Revolution by Samar Yazbek, um, which is a little bit it's a little bit hard to find these days. It's her earlier book on the, her experiences in the revolution. So I love that book because it gives a real feel for you know, how things were at the start, at the very start of the Syrian Revolution, including how Palestinians were smeared by the Assad regime, you know, how the regime from the beginning tried to ramp up sectarianism to crush the uprising and uh, the efforts of students and young activists uh, to carry forward despite everything.
1: So uh, one of mine was one that be listed, so I'm going to have to come up with another one. It was uh, Islamophobia and the Politics of the Empire. It's a really, really fabulous book, and I I think anyone, anyone living in the United States in particular, I think, should read this. This should be in one of the top five books you read in the next seven months. Um, so uh, my first two are actually novels, um, so first is called I'm a big fan of historical novels. The first is Arundhati Roy's uh, Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Mm, yeah. It's a really, really fabulous, really rich book um, and like truly a historical novel. You will learn just as much as a nonfiction book. Um, very good book. And then the second is um, I'm very into spy novels and like espionage. And um, John le Carré is someone who I discovered Few months ago uh, and started reading. And, and actually, his books kept me company. I had COVID in January and it, his books kept me company for two weeks. But um, one of my favorite books of his is called Smiley's People. Really, really highly recommend it if you want to just be taken to a different era. Of fabulous writing, um, also very historical, uh, very good book. And then I think instead of a third book, Joey, if this is okay, since mine was is also a Thomas Plus Empire, I'm going to recommend a movie. Um, that is really, really it's, it's probably one of my top two favorite movies. It's called Kafar Qasim. Um,
0: mm-hmm. I
1: don't think it's available anywhere right now, unfortunately, unless you find a bootleg copy because it's being restored. But it was made in the 1970s and it's about the Kafar Qasim massacre in 1956. And um, the reason it's so powerful is because it starts on the eve of Nasser announcing the, the nationalization of the Suez Canal. And uh, it's about Kafar Qasim, and it shows the different political uh, groupings in Kafar Qasim, the like sort of socioeconomic breakdown of the people in Kafar Qasim. So you had the Nasirists, you had the communists, you had the workers that that worked for this Israeli settlement, um, and then the Palestinian middleman and the corrupt mayor. It's a really, really great movie and and, uh, highly recommend it if you haven't seen it yet.
0: It's it's by I'm, my PhD is on Lebanese cinema. <laughs> it's on Bukha, it's by Bohan Alawiye from the year the 70s.
2: So Maya, you also reminded me. I wanted to bring up the movie, uh, the feeling of being watched. You know, do you know that movie? It talks about um, it, it. It talks about how basically Islamophobic surveillance in the U.S., specifically talking about a, a community in Chicago, and how uh, certain figures in the community were uh, brought to, to, brought charges against them basically because of them, uh, raising money for Palestine. But in the end, all they could get against them was, you know, leaving something out of their taxes. <laughs> but, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's using one example of a community in Chicago to say how, uh, s- Islamophobic surveillance works in the, across the U S really really to to put people under the label of terrorism for giving money to Palestine and then, uh, mm. yeah, going after them in all different, <laughs> basically it's the idea, the feeling of being watched, it's like the FBI is constantly watching you.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's from, it's 2018, I just found it. I will link everything we're talking about now in the show notes and on, on the blog post anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, guys thanks a lot for this this has been really informative i will actually try my best to to publish it soon after uh, like now basically soon in a few hours maybe um but yeah thanks a lot for your time thank you so
2: much
1: thanks joey
0: Fire These Times is made possible by supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support through a monthly donation, you can head out to patreon.com slash times If you want to explore other options, you can do so by checking out the website.